I don't know if any of y'all had the chance, but last month, Amanda, Ben, and I had the opportunity to go down to the Majestic Theater and watch the play, the monologue, C.S. Lewis, The Most Reluctant Convert. Have any of y'all seen that? Yeah, super cool. Um, it's, uh, it's a whole monologue, about 80 minutes, about 85 minutes, um, all in C.S. Lewis's own words. Um, this actor, a guy named Max McLean, uh, shares Lewis's story, the story of his conversion, actually his threefold conversion. His conversion from atheism to theism, from theism to monotheism, and finally from monotheism to Christ. Um, and and the, the whole kind of monologue, at least for me, reaches a climax um, with this quote from Lewis's own words in his book, Surprised by Joy. You must picture me alone, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of God whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me, and I gave in and admitted that God was God, and knelt and prayed. And I found myself during this entire monologue incredibly moved. In fact, toward the end, when uh, everybody began to get up and leave, I, found, I, was just, I was sitting in just a pool of tears. I was so moved by how this monologue and how the story of C.S. Lewis's encounter with the Lord Jesus and experience of the gospel uh, just brought up in me gratitude for the grace of God and the importance of talking about Jesus with one another. And I began to contemplate what would my life had been like if it wasn't for my youth minister and my young life leader and David and Joe who introduced me to Jesus and loved me and shared their story of their relationship with Jesus until I stopped arguing and started asking, tell me more. As I was leaving and trying to put myself together, I was thinking, I'm going to go back to the media booth and I'm going to buy one of those DVDs of this very monologue. They said it's for sale. And the crowd was uh, stirring. It was starting to rain. And we ended up going home. And I was a little bit crushed that I didn't buy this video because I wanted to watch it again. And then I found out that it's free on Netflix. So you too can watch C.S. Lewis, the most reluctant convert. It's powerful. Stories of being introduced to Jesus and the difference that he makes in our lives, stories of the power of the gospel are so encouraging to us. Our story, other people's story, when we share our story with one another. And today we're beginning this new message series in, in Galatians. And what that means is that this summer we have a, a repeated opportunity uh, to hear 
the good news of Jesus Christ, to receive more deeply for the first time, once again, the good news of salvation, to realign ourselves, to rejoice in the power of the amazing gospel of God's love and grace. This is what Paul's letter to the Galatian helps us begin to experience together as a gospel community. The gospel is the story of a person. It's not a formula. It's not a tract. It's not a set of laws. It's a person. His name is Jesus, who was born to reveal the love of the Father to us, who died to forgive our sins, and who rose from the dead to defeat sin and death and all of the works of the devil. And at its heart, what we're going to find is this, that the gospel declares that we're more messed up and broken than we ever imagined. And we're more loved and accepted than we could ever hope. The gospel is the power of God drawing us to the love of the Father, forgiving, healing, and redeeming us in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and continually comforting and transforming and uniting us and bearing witness through us in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. This is, this is who we are. It's what our window declares who we are. The loving hand of the Father. The sacrificial death of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the dove of the Holy Spirit who comes and reminds us that we are well-loved. That God is pleased with us that he is present with us and that we belong to him here and now and forever. You ever seen that in that window? Just contemplate that window. On Trinitarian Sunday, we celebrate that we have a window that reminds us that we have a Trinitarian God and we are a Trinitarian people. Before I go, I better pray. Lord, um, we thank you for your word. And we acknowledge that you've caused all holy scriptures to be written for our joy and transformation. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and open our hearts, open our minds, that we could hear your word, that we could read and mark and learn and inwardly digest the seed of the gospel of the kingdom of God that it would take deep root and bear much fruit, and that we would embrace and ever hold fast to the hope of everlasting life that you've given us freely, out of love, through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, open your Bibles to Galatians 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9. In your blue Bibles, that's on page 972. 972. The big idea this week, the big idea of this passage is this. Our allegiance to the gospel is important. It is what God has used not only to save us, but to continue to grow us and mature us in the knowledge and love and likeness of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. So the big idea of this passage is our allegiance to the gospel, why we're tempted to desert the gospel, and how we know the gospel that we hear and receive and speak to one another is the real one. 
and not a counterfeit. That's what we're looking at this morning. We begin at verse 1. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but from Jesus Christ and God the Father. Paul begins his letter with a clarification of his authority. His authority doesn't come from a popular vote or through the appointment of some human higher up, but that his authority comes directly from God. And he begins his letter to the Galatians with his authority because there's some confusion about who's in charge. And so he's declaring that his authority is from God. And anytime someone begins a conversation or a letter describing first their authority, it should kind of raise your eyebrows as that they're going to have something very powerful and important that they're about to tell you. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. Once a very notorious persecutor of the Christians, Paul has this profound conversion experience that led to this radical, inside-out, 180-degree transformational life turn. Paul meets Jesus. And he experiences the gracious, wonderful, amazing power of the gospel personally in his life. Once a prominent Pharisee, Paul becomes the preeminent church planter. In grateful response to the love and saving work of Jesus Christ in his life, Paul begins to live not for himself, but for Christ, and to be faithful to God's call in his life to share this hope, the hope of the world, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ with the Gentiles. Acts 13 and 14 details his first missionary journey on the screen where he introduces people to Jesus in four key cities. Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. And people respond. They come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. The word of God does not return void. When the message of the gospel is preached, the spirit of God takes the message of God and plants it in the heart of people and does a supernatural work to take away a heart of stone and give a heart of flesh. To take away the old and bring the new. To recreate people in the image and likeness of God. Redeeming them from the curse of sin, death, and the devil. When the gospel is preached, when, when Paul helps people meet Jesus, when he introduces people to Jesus, they respond. They come into a saving relationship with Jesus. And what we see throughout the book of Acts is that when the message is preached, it is followed by a filling of the Holy Spirit and baptism, not necessarily in any particular order. But those three things are always happening in the apostolic proclamation of Jesus Christ. And as the work of the Great Commission continues, the people in these four cities begin uh, to follow Jesus, not just to come to him, but to imitate him, to start taking on his values and his attitudes and his practices. And they begin to put his teaching into practice, to try it out, not just to be hearers of the gospel, but doers of the gospels 
of the gospel. And the Galatian disciples grow in the knowledge and love and likeness of Jesus, and they begin to make other disciples who make other disciples, and it ignites a movement. People needing Jesus leads to disciples who make disciples that multiplies into a new expression of the local church. And this is how Paul is continuing the mission and ministry of Jesus. It's also how we are continuing the mission and ministry of Jesus in San Antonio. We're a gospel community, a people who exists because of the love of the Father, the grace of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Every, every Sunday, we process the cross into worship. And every Sunday, when we read the gospel, when we read the scriptures, we process the cross into the middle of the sanctuary. Why? Because it is a reminder that we are here, that we have life, that we are a royal priesthood and a holy nation, not because of anything that we have done, but because of who Jesus is, because of what he has done, because what he is doing in our lives, because of what he is doing for us together as a community and what he will continue to do and ultimately come back and do. We don't just do that because it's always been done since the first century, which it has, and that's cool. We do that because it reminds us of who God is and who we are, and we need that reminder continually. Well, by 48 AD, there's a new church plant in each of the four main cities in the southern part of the region known as Galatia. And these are the people that Paul has loved, that Paul has shared the gospel with, and his life as well. And these are the people that Paul is now writing. Look at verse 2. To the churches in Galatia. This is Paul's earliest letter, written approximately 15 years after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. Paul is writing to these churches, these people of Jesus that he has shared the gospel with and discipled. He's moved on and is planting another church at this point in a different region, but he's writing back to them. Why? Because these churches which he planted and established were being confused. They were being confused by untrue teaching. Some in leadership were altering the clear and simple message of the gospel, and it was troubling and harassing and dividing God's people. In particular, a group of Jewish converts were insisting that the Gentile converts practice all the traditional ceremonial customs of the law of Moses. They were teaching that more than faith in Christ was necessary for salvation. They were discipling people into the importance of things above and beyond relationship with Jesus Christ, like the importance of dietary restrictions and circumcision, and that these things were necessary to be fully accepted by God and a member of the church. They're insisting upon a Christ plus performance-based acceptance. And in doing so, they were presenting a different gospel, a false gospel. One that Paul says is no gospel at all because it's not good news. It's terrible news if our salvation depends on us. 
It was an impure gospel that was harming and dividing and confusing the people of God. And so Paul doesn't shrink back and go passive. With great love, with great care, with great concern, he exerts his apostolic authority. He writes a letter filled with truth and grace to confront gently and restore gently the people of Galatia in their error and remind them of the basics of the gospel. Has this ever happened to you? Have you ever had somebody that has loved you enough to speak the truth with grace and realign you, to help you embrace the one true gospel of the apostolic faith. By God's grace, it happens to me almost every day, and I am so grateful for that because I'm prone to wonder. I get tired and confused, and I go back to the old patterns of my life. And Jesus never calls us to follow him in isolation. He calls us to follow him together because we need one another. A couple of years ago, we were in um, the middle of a message series, and God had put on my heart uh, a, a message to preach that I was sensing he was saying was helpful and nurturing and nourishing for us as a gospel community. And so I worked on this message, even though what I was teaching and preaching was kind of topical and it didn't fit the scripture that was assigned for that Sunday. And I did what I vowed I would never do. What had hurt me so often in my past relationship with the church, I backed the message that I wanted to preach up into the scripture. That's like, like I vowed I would never do that. That's not cool. It's not helpful. It's not right. And a day or so later, I got a very gracious, a very kind, a very thoughtful, a very generous email from Jonathan Williams. And he was questioning, very gently, my application of the Scripture. And I was just cut to the core. I already felt, I knew, I knew it was wrong. And the Lord was working on me. But I couldn't quite work it out. And by God's grace, Jonathan wrote me this email, and I'm like, yep, that's it. And I picked up the phone, and I called him. I remember sitting outside on my porch, having this conversation with him, asking him, listening to his heart, and then agreeing and asking for God's forgiveness and for his forgiveness and thanking him for loving me enough to say, hey, that wasn't really in alignment with the scripture. That's not helpful. I know that's not your heart. And created this environment, this opportunity for me to confess and repent and be restored and it was a wonderful thing. I, I need that every day. We need that every day as a gospel community, as the people of Christ. It's not like we just hear the gospel and then we're saved and then that's it. 
The gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. It doesn't just get us into the kingdom. It's how we grow and mature as citizens of the kingdom and live the life of kingdom citizens. We need to be continually reminded of the gospel, who Jesus is, who we are, and how we live in grateful response. And the goal is not perfection. The goal is not error-free. The goal is that when we fall and when we stumble, the goal is that when we make a mistake and we act like a dodo and we do something or say something that's outside our true identity in Christ, that we fling ourselves at the foot of the cross and receive the grace and forgiveness that's ours in Him. And most of the time, we need each other's help to do that. Look at verse 3. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, of all of the ways that Paul could greet these people in this circumstance, dealing with this issue, he uses grace and peace. It's, it's not a spiritual throwaway line. It is a fantastic gospel summary. The nature of salvation is peace. Remember? A restoration of shalom with God. Shalom with ourselves. Shalom with one another. That's why every Sunday when we welcome one another, we say the peace of the Lord be with you. Why? Well, because people have been doing that, you know, since the first century. Sure, that's cool. That's great. But it's a reminder of who we are in Christ. We have, we have peace with God through the cross of Christ and peace with one another through the cross of Christ. And therefore, we can exchange that peace and celebrate that peace and remind us of the shalom of God that we were created to enjoy and that we have in full once again in Jesus. The nature of salvation is peace. The source of salvation is grace. This is what Paul's getting at. So why he's starting his letter. Grace, God's favor, irrespective of any effort or any merit, on our part. It's his undeserving, loving kindness. It's a gift from God that God gives and we receive. It's by grace through faith, not in something that we do, but in the perfect finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. It's finished. It's finished. Last words, important words. It's finished for our sake on our behalf. Y'all, being willing and able to gospel one another is absolutely essential to our life together in Christ. Paul's going to write in Ephesians chapter 4 that how we grow, how we mature in Christ and Christ-likeness is by speaking the truth in love to one another. What's the truth? The truth is a person. Jesus is the truth, the way and the life. So in love, we speak Jesus to one another. What does that mean? It means that we talk about who he is and because of who he is, who we are in him and who he is in us. On uh, Friday, I don't know, this week all kind of ran together. I think it was Friday. Um, Amber and Britt, came to my office, we were having a meeting about several things. And very gently and in love, they expressed 
a concern, which as I continue to ask some clarifying question, uh, kind of unraveled as a hurt. And uh, as we continued to talk, the Spirit of God just kind of came upon me. And I realized, wow, I've got some responsibility in this. And uh, more specifically, I was convicted around this particular issue of how inconsiderate I had been. How inconsiderate I had been. And as I shared that, there was a lot of love and grace. And I was thankful and I went away thinking, okay, I, I don't want to be inconsiderate. What do I read? What do I start doing? How do I figure out a way for me to stop being inconsiderate? That ever happened to y'all? And, and all of a sudden you're trying to figure out how to do something that you can't do, that only God can do, and yet you're taking it upon yourself and out of your own knowledge or skill or strength, you're trying to make yourself right with God and become more like him. I mean, we think we don't desert the gospel, but in its subtlety, I desert the gospel all the time. Friday afternoon, I realized that in the confession of my sin and the forgiveness that I received, my response was going to try and figure out a way to make me different. That's subtle, but it's sick. Then Saturday morning, we had uh, a makerspace meeting. Wow, Robert Balfour is doing the most incredible job. The team of leaders that have been meeting regularly. We met for four hours yesterday, and it was just so fun. And we started with a scripture devotion, and we do what we do. We soaked up scripture, observation, application, prayer. And in uh, the middle of this conversation, the Holy Spirit came upon me again, and I was reminded that I don't need another book. I don't need a program to make myself less inconsiderate or more considerate. I need the Holy Spirit working in my life to do what I could never do myself. I don't need to strain. I don't need to strive. I need to surrender. I need to trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on my behalf and fling myself at his feet for healing and transformation that I could be the considerate person that he created and redeemed me to be. I need Jesus. We need Jesus. We need the gospel. I uh, ended up yesterday afternoon having a conversation with a different friend, sharing with them some of the things that I was struggling with. And they loved me enough to speak the truth to me, reminding me who I am and encouraging me to reflect not on what other people think about me, but what the Father thinks about me. I got gospeled. Getting gospeled is good. Look at verses 4 and 5. Jesus gave his life for our sins, just as God our Father planned in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live, and all glory to God forever and ever. Amen. This word rescue is really important. Have any of y'all ever been rescued? Like legit, rescued? Have any of y'all ever been like lost? 
and found. In 1993, um, I did a backpacking trip uh, into the Wind River Range in Wyoming. And it was the first time in my life that I'd ever been lost. I had the map. We were looking for some good fishing. There was a lake way over here off the trail. And I took a lot of pride in my map and compass work. And with too much arrogance, I'm like, hey, let's go. And after about four hours, I realized I had absolutely no idea where we were. A hailstorm came through. My buddy and I are sitting under a tree, really cold, really scared, not knowing if we were ever going to find our way out of there. So all the movies that you see start going through your head. You know, this is it. It's over. You know, we're going to have to go Robinson Caruso, Swiss Family Robinson, you know, Grizzly Adams, build a cabin, live off the fat of the land. And we're sitting there and we're talking, we're panicking, we're really anxious. We're both on the verge of tears. And all of a sudden, this cowboy on horseback with a duster and a hat comes riding by. We're in the middle of nowhere. We're like four days from anybody. And he says, are y'all lost? (laughs) I said, yeah. And he says, well, where are you going? I said, well, we're trying to bushwhack to this lake over here. It doesn't have a name. And he said, do you have a map? And I said, yes, but I'm having trouble with it. And he says, show me. And so I took the map. I pointed to where we were going. And he said, I know where that is, follow me. And so my buddy and I are having this, like, is this an angel? (laughs) Right? Like, what is going on here? Because this is like way outside of the norm. And so he's walking. He doesn't say anything to us. He's on his horse. We're walking behind him. And about 30 minutes later, we come over a rise. And I kid you not, there is this big, huge army tent with a metal stack stove fireplace coming out and smoke coming up. This is in the middle of nowhere. And we go and we go inside this tent and we sit at a picnic table. We're at like 12,500 feet. We're at tree line. We sit at a picnic table. He offers us hot coffee. We rest for about 30 minutes, warm up, and then he points us the direction that we go and we go. Now, we got to the lake. We caught so many fish. It was fantastic. And we don't know if that dude was an angel or if he was just up there early getting ready for his, you know, elk hunting business. I don't know. But it's really scary being lost. And it's one of the greatest feelings that we can ever experience when we're rescued. And this is what Paul is getting at. Paul is reminding us who we are. We are helpless and lost. That's what the word rescue implies. You don't rescue people unless they're in a helpless condition. Unless they can't rescue themselves. This is the gospel. Yesterday I was at the Alamo Heights pool. Imagine you're at the Alamo Heights pool and you see a drowning woman. It doesn't help if you throw her an amazing manual on how to swim. Even if it has really great pictures in large font, it it doesn't help. It also doesn't help if all you do is run to the side of the deep end and begin a moral discourse on how she got into that situation and what she could have done to avoid it. 
She needs a life jacket. She needs a life preserver. She needs somebody to rescue her. Y'all, Jesus is not just a great moral teacher. He's not just an insightful prophet. More than anything else, Jesus is rescuer. He's our rescuer because that's what we need the most. He's rescued us from this evil world in which we live. Look at verses 6 and 7. The the phrase Paul uses here for turning away literally means to transfer one's allegiance. It's the term used of a deserter in an army. It's a turncoat. It's what Paul is accusing or telling the Galatians that they're doing. They're spiritual deserters. They're gospel turncoats. They're turning away from Christ and the gospel marked by the grace of God and embracing a false gospel marked by religious works and rituals. And Paul is astonished. It'd be like receiving a free, brand new, beautiful house that had everything you always needed. And then you just, eh, walked away from it. Be unfathomable. It'd be like graduating from the University of Texas and all of a sudden finding yourself cheering for the Oklahoma Sooners. Like, <laughs> it's just mesmerizing. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And what was happening is that the, the Galatian believers were deserting the gospel and they were deserting the gospel because of poor leadership, teachers who were shaking and agitating them with requirements and rituals that Jesus had set them free from. And by adding to it the necessity of works, they were actually reversing the gospel. Some of y'all know um, this is a part of our story as grace. This is how the Anglican mission in America got birthed. Uh, in our, our former tribe, after years, uh, came to a place where it existed in a crisis of faith. A crisis of faith where uh, they would no longer hold up the uniqueness of Christ. They would no longer hold up the authority of Scripture. And a crisis of faith turned into a crisis of leadership and politics and position displaced and watered down the primary purpose of the church to proclaim the gospel and make disciples and develop develop kingdom leaders to live on mission. And a group of leaders said, we still want to follow Jesus as Anglicans, but we can no longer with a clear conscience do it in this way. And the Anglican mission was born. Paul is astonished that the believers are taking hold of a perverted gospel that really isn't a gospel at all, and he's angry at the ones who are misleading John Stott says it this way. Tampering with the gospel will always trouble the church. You cannot tamper the gospel and leave the church untouched because the church is created and lives by the gospel. Indeed, the church's greatest troublemakers now and then are not those outside who oppose, ridicule, or persecute it, but those inside who try to change it. 
It is they who trouble the church. So Paul goes on, look at verses 8 through 10. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Why such strong language? Because the glory of Christ was at stake. To make religious works and traditional rituals necessary to salvation is derogatory to the finished work of Christ on the cross. It's to imply that Christ's sacrificial death was in some way unsatisfactory and that we need to add to it and improve upon it for it to be truly effective. And to say that we contribute to our salvation through the merits of our own deeds or our morality is to declare the cross insufficient and powerless and meaningless, meaning Christ died in vain. You want to say that? You want to live that way? No way. Think of it. Cursed. How is that a curse? Paul's going to write in Galatians 3.13 that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And so whenever someone directs us away, or we direct someone away from the all-sufficient, curse-removing, substitutional death of Jesus Christ on the cross, we are leading people away from the curse-removing gospel. We're re-inviting them to the curse of sin that Christ has died to remove from them. That's how the curse comes. It's when we reject the grace of Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit. Answer this question. Does the God who lavishly provides for you with his own presence, his life-giving Holy Spirit, working things in your life that you can never do for yourself, does God do these things because of your strenuous moral striving? Or because of your religious traditions and rituals? Or because you trust him? to do them in and through you. There's only one gospel. And it's popular. And some people think, even today, that they're saved by a strong belief in God and their love for God. And so they feel like they have to continually generate that spiritual hunger and faith and passion in order to be saved and to stay saved so functionally They become their own savior and their righteousness rests on their ability to keep their spiritual emotions and affections high all the time. And that's a different gospel. And all that does is lead to spiritual exhaustion and depression because it's no gospel at all. We're not saved by our faith. Did you hear that? We're not saved by our faith. We're saved by God's grace through faith. Our performance does not save us. The performance of Christ saves us. Faith is what connects us, not what saves us. So last, let me just ask this question. Since the gospel is so crucial, and so often and easily confused and perverted and reversed. 
How can we ensure the gospel we believe is actually the true one? How can we recognize and respond and share the one true gospel? Two things. And this is what we're going to really delve into this summer. One, the substance of the gospel is grace and peace. The gospel of God's free and unmerited favor towards us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that restores us to peace with God, peace with ourselves, and peace with one another. And whenever a teacher or whenever we hear a voice in the back of our head that starts to exalt human effort, implying that we can contribute anything to our salvation by our morality or religious effort or social respectability, the gospel of grace is corrupted. And it doesn't feel peaceful. It feels burdensome. That's how you know. That's the first test. The gospel is a balm to our soul, not a wet lead blanket. Second, the source of the gospel is the apostolic faith now recorded in the New Testament. So as followers of Jesus who happen to be Anglican, we say it this way, we believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to contain all things necessary for salvation. And that anything that is not contained in the scripture is a secondary issue and no one is required to believe it for salvation. That's the second test. Anybody who teaches something other than the apostolic faith expressed through the scriptures is to be corrected, restored gently and in love. That means we can't be dazzled by the person or the gifting or the charisma of a teacher in the church. They can come to us with great dignity and authority and impressive ministries and resumes. They can be prophets and bishops and archbishops, but if they bring a gospel other than the gospel preached by the apostles and recorded in the New Testament, they are to be corrected gently and in love. And that means that if an angel literally showed up in the middle of our worship gathering and taught that salvation was by good works or anything except by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, we should literally kick that angel out of here. That's what Paul says in verses 8 and 9. Y'all, what God is encouraging us to re-embrace this summer is not to compromise the gospel like the Judaizers. Not to desert the gospel like the Galatians. But to embrace the grace and the love and the joy of the gospel of Jesus Christ that is a balm to our soul, that forgives our sins, that heals our hurts, that restores us to God and one another, that makes us who God created and redeemed us to be in the first place. To enjoy that gospel with one another, to share that gospel with one another, and to watch what God does in our lives and through our lives through all those around us. Three questions for you this week. In your time of personal devotion, in your journal, around the dinner table, with somebody at work, with your spouse, with your roommate, with a friend, how would you explain the gospel to someone who asked you today what you believe? Are you prepared, in season and out of season, to talk about Jesus, to share your story? Second, how important is the gospel to you? 
This starts meddling a little bit. And you can tell by how it's demonstrated in your priorities and commitments and behaviors. And third, why does understanding the true gospel produce shock and anger at false gospels? Or does it? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for rescuing us from our sins through the death of your Son, Jesus Christ, and raising us with him to prove your forgiveness is free and available to all who repent and turn to you. And so as we come to the table this morning, Father, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, that you would deepen our love and passion for the gospel, that you would give us the wisdom and the ability to recognize false, reverse gospels, and that you would give us the desire, the longing, the hunger to hear and speak the gospel to ourselves and to one another, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. We pray gratefully in Jesus' name. Amen.